Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. My name is Ryan Becker. I am your host. I, it is good to be back. And we are in the final week of 2020. We did it. Um, and, you know, I think, I think one of the big things surrounding 2020 uh, is there's a lot of people that at this point in the year or even you know, going into next year will start to feel a lot of regret or a lot of, you know, what if or what could have been regarding all the free time that they may have had in quarantine. But the reality is that just because we had a lot of free time in quarantine doesn't actually mean uh, that we had the energy or we had we were in the right mental space. We had, you know, what we needed in order to, you know, in order to be successful in any of the projects or whatever that we wanted to accomplish. Like if there was any year for me to grow my YouTube channel and to to grow the podcast network and to grow absurdity, like this would have been that year. And yet this is the year that I had a bunch of health problems. This is the year that prevented content creation. This is the year where I got burnt out. Um, it just hit all of us hard. And that's the reality of it. So you know, if you're listening to this and you're in that boat of like, man, I wish I could have, I, I wish I would have done more with the time that I had. Let me just tell you that you were successful enough just because you made it to this point. Like, I think the goal for all of us in 2020 was just surviving. So if you made it, congratulations, welcome. I'm glad you're here um, and I'm glad you're listening. I am running a promo right now uh, all the way through January 4. So for the next week, uh, all the way through Monday, January 4, if you go to absurdnetwork.com slash merch and you enter promo code 2020 is over, you will get 21% off on any uh, on your entire order. So 21% off. I know that's a really specific number. It's because we're about to enter 2021. And I thought that was something that was worth celebrating. So Tony is on vacation and he will be uh, actually taking the next six months to focus fully on school, on relationship, and on like other pieces of his life that really need his time and attention right now. Uh, so for the next six months or so, we'll revisit after he's finished with the semester. Um, it's just going to be me. Now, not every episode will be a solo episode. That doesn't mean that you're just stuck with only me, uh, but it does mean that it will be me most often, and I am going to try and have some guests on here, but I am committed to getting content out to you. And if you are interested in supporting the podcast in any way, shape, or form, um, you can actually go to theabsurdity.org and you'll see a little login or sign up button on the bottom right. $4 a month and you can join the Absurdity family. You'll get access to a premium uh, part of the Absurdity website for members only. You'll get access to uh, a ad-free uh, version of the podcast um, for both Absurdity and A Beautiful Faith. Uh, you'll get access to that and... Um, and you'll be, and it's just $4 a month. And that's never going to change. As long as you sign up on that plan, it will always be $4 a month for you. I, I, you'll be grandfathered in. Um, you can also, if you want to give more than that um, or less than that, uh, you can join over on Patreon. Um, or you can um, actually, if you go to theabsurdity.org slash donate, uh, we have a PayPal button set up. And if you set up a recurring monthly donation of any amount, I will grant you access uh, as well. So, You'll join the Absurdity family. We'll get you that invite sent. We'll get you all, everything that you need uh, to access the members-only part of the website. You'll get access to special, you know, um, special streams, special things that I do for members only as that community grows. So head on over there if you want to support what I'm doing. Um, yeah, I'm excited, and I'm excited about 2021 and looking forward to that. But with that being said, let's get into uh, today's topic. We're talking about 
COVID relief. We're talking about government aid, everything that has kind of happened in the last couple of weeks um, uh, regarding stimulus package and the spending, the omnibus bill that went through Congress and was passed by both the House and Senate. And then it currently sits on Trump's desk waiting to waiting in purgatory because he's calling for more aid. So on December 21, lawmakers in both chambers of Congress passed a $2.3 trillion spending package. Uh, so roughly it's a it's a 1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill. You know, it's a broad spending bill. But it's and, and, and it's and it's actually consisting of of, many, of several different bills, actually 12 different bills to fund the government during 2021, during the fiscal year of 2021. So um, there was a one point four trillion omnibus spending bill, which includes 12 smaller bills. And then there is a approximately nine hundred dollar or nine hundred billion dollar bill specifically for covid-19 relief. Right. So. So you've got this omnibus bill and the COVID relief was not tacked on as a part of it. It was it was tacked on as a part of it, but it is a separate bill. So there's there's currently a lot of myths going out there that like, oh, we're sending all this foreign money or this aid, foreign aid in the form of money to Egypt and a bunch of other countries. But we're only giving 900 billion to us or we're only doing, you know, you know, we're, we're not helping our own people. We're only sending us six hundred dollars. But it's a completely different spending bill that that's a part of. So. It's not that we are doing those things and not doing anything for COVID. It's that that's like a completely different topic. It's a completely separate thing that was always in the that was always in the plan. And COVID relief is something else entirely. It's a part of a separate thing. So here's what the nine hundred billion dollar uh, COVID relief bill actually contains. So it's three hundred and twenty five billion dollars in aid to small businesses, which includes a kind of a, a continuing a continuance of the Paycheck uh, Protection Program, the PPP loans. Um, there's $120 billion for unemployment assistance, uh, or $300 a week for 11 weeks. There's $82 billion for education, such as K-12 education grants. There's $56 billion for healthcare, which includes funding for states to do COVID-19 testing. There's $45 billion for transport or for transportation, which includes payroll support program for airline workers, um, not airlines, airline workers who are on the verge of losing their job because people aren't flying anymore uh, or not as much. Over a million flew on Christmas Eve, but that's other here nor there. And then $83 billion for other spending, such as rental assistance, nutrition programs, etc. Um, and then $40 billion for other tax cuts, such as, um, such as uh, the, expand, the expand employee retention tax credit. And then there's $166 billion for the uh, stimulus checks. Overall, like I agree that $600 is nowhere near enough. The amount of families and, and households that have been struggling for the last nine months and they've only been given $1,200, $600 just kind of feels like a slap in the face. And I'm glad that, like, I'm glad that we're talking about that. I, I think that that's something that is incredibly important. And I do think that that's valuable enough to hold up a bill like this that that we would talk about it. I I do have concerns though, for example, that the, that the 325 billion dollars that's going in aid to small businesses including the Paycheck Protection Program will just be taken advantage of the exact same way the first one, the first relief bill was for businesses, which means that all the big corporations that have subsidiaries 
snatch up the money for their subsidiaries or large churches do. I think what um, Joel Olstein's church got four million dollars or four point four million dollars in um, in PPP loans from the government. Um, I'm worried that that will happen to that three hundred and twenty five billion dollars in aid to small businesses. Um, and, you know. I do think that Americans need more than six hundred dollars uh, or six hundred dollars one time. And my I think I think something, though, is more heinous here, because while this bill gets caught up as we're talking about whether six hundred dollar aid is is something that we should be doing, um, right? Or if you know, or, or if we should increase that to two thousand dollars, because that's that's the conversation right now that Trump is holding it up because he wants to see two thousand dollars. House Republicans put that to a vote, hoping to get a unanimous vote on Christmas Eve, and GOP within the uh, within the House actually um, blocked it. And so I believe I'm recording this Sunday night on the 27th, but I believe on Monday the 28th that the House will bring it up. Uh, House Democrats will bring it up again uh, for an official vote. It'll go through, and then it's going to be on uh, Senate Republicans to. It's basically going to be on Mitch to actually put it forth for a vote. And this right before key, literally a week and a half before, two weeks before the key uh, Georgia runoff elections for the Senate uh, for the two most important seats, because it will determine who has Senate majority for the next two years. Um, But something I I think something far worse is happening under the surface here that I that enough people aren't talking about uh, or that, you know, not enough people are, are talking about, which is that two federal unemployment aid programs are now going to end. They end on December 31 without this relief bill being signed because basically unemployment benefits not not at the state and local level and there is still like regular unemployment but but additional unemployment help is going to be now stalled if nothing gets passed this week because the last payment for these two other programs I believe gets dispensed this week the week of December 27 and the programs end officially on December 31 so one program called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, um, it has been available to the self-employed. It's been available to gig workers and others typically not eligible for unemployment aid because they don't like they can't go the normal route since they're freelancers. They're work. They're they're self-employed. And then the other, the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, provided up to 13 weeks of additional payments uh, to individuals who exhausted other programs. Um, who exhausted other programs that pay benefits such as regular state unemployment benefits. So if you've used up all of your state unemployment benefits, there was up to additional thir- an additional 13 weeks of payments. And there are 14 million people that are currently benefiting from these two programs. And unless this bill goes through, or some bill goes through, by the way, because I like there are some things in this bill that I don't think should be in there at all. Something needs to be done this week in order to protect these people from losing the aid that they that they've had and that they still need. But I think there's a then a grander conversation because there's a lot of people currently talking about whether or not we should be even giving any aid. And that's kind of honestly disgusting to me because I don't hear those same people complaining about the amount of spending that went into the first bill. Uh, toward helping 
like businesses and companies, like the amount of corporate bailouts that we have done. And I don't hear the same people uh, complaining about those um, is 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 kind of annoying to me. And, and it's frustrating to me. I can look at someone like Rand Paul who voted for um, a huge aid packet to corporations, but then last week stood up and said that this kind of spending is irresponsible and that any Republican that votes for this nine hundred billion dollar bill that's going to send money to uh, to Americans. Well, they're you know, they can't they will no longer have any moral ground to stand on. They're hypocrites. They've betrayed their whole fiscally conservative and fiscally or fiscal responsibility platform uh, in order to needlessly spend money. But this is the same. This is the same person who voted for aid to go to corporate, uh, to go to corporate or corporations. So there's a little bit of that going on, a little bit of hypocrisy there. But I want to actually kind of talk about the the entire idea of government aid. Should be should we be receiving government aid? And I think there there's this conversation of like personal responsibility versus government aid, you know, receiving government aid or third party assistance. And this has always bothered me because we pay taxes. Like we aren't asking for COVID. Like when it comes to COVID relief and pandemic relief funds, we're not asking for money that like isn't ours. We're just asking for some of our money back to pay bills. And I'm not like, sure, I would appreciate having a COVID relief bill. I think it would I think it would help in some respects for me, but I'm not in one of the positions of, of like desperate need. I'm not. It would be something that is beneficial to me, but not something I need. I'm advocating for this for other people. But the bottom line is like we're asking for money that we give into the system. We're just asking for that back. And if the government is created by the people for the people and to serve the people then shouldn't we be about government aid? Because government aid is the U.S. or U.S. citizens supporting one another. We all pulled into a system together. We put elected leaders in place to um, to advocate, to represent, and to lead and make decisions that benefit all of us. And government aid being vilified as this third party coming in and doing something else for you, like that, to me... That just seems disingenuous to what this is, because if I'm paying taxes, all I'm doing is saying I want a, a relief from that. I want some of that back because I want to be able to pay my bills. I'm struggling right now. And the, the whole like it's socialism, it's socialism. We can't we can't rely on the government to redistribute stuff like that. We can't tax. We can't tax people above X percent or, or you know, X income amount. That whole argument just seems to fall flat on its face when you consider the fact that we already do socialism in many, many ways. Like health insurance, car insurance, any sort of insurance is a form of socialism where the reason that we get aid is because everyone pulls in, pays into one pot, making a large enough pot for everyone to now benefit when they need it. The downside to privatized health insurance, and we're going to talk about health insurance specifically here, the downside to privatized health insurance is that there is now a third party involved that has motives and interests that are directly opposed or directly opposed to those they insure, right? Because those that run insurance companies and those that are actually making decisions on whether or not to approve your claim, they have the job, the explicit job of making as much money as possible 
for them, for the, for the company, and for shareholders. And every time that they approve a claim or an expense, that is less revenue for them and their shareholders and the company. But under a single-payer system, we could absolutely limit that incentive or that, that kind of that motive by removing the drive to make money and turning the system into something that works specifically to serve those who need it. Government institutions weren't always meant to make some massive profit like a corporation. Government entities are meant to be profitable insofar as being able to grow and, and insofar as being able to you know, scale operations and things like that but, and, and to be cost effective. But they're not meant to be like Amazon or Google or Apple, where they just bring in billions and billions of dollars in revenue um, beyond beyond their own expenses. I was actually listening to a debate this morning. Um, I was watching some YouTube videos, as one does when they wake up on Sunday morning. But I was I was listening to a debate earlier this morning that was uh, where where those on the show were discussing this idea of like a single payer Medicare for all system. And one of the guests, um, he goes by Vosh, V-A-U-S-H uh, on uh, YouTube, um, started talking about why capitalism and the free market can't provide something like healthcare. Like we can't rely on capitalism to provide something like healthcare. And I I thought what he said here was was really was really poignant and something that that I hadn't considered in this way before, but I think it's I think it's valid. But let me make this clear real quick. I don't think capitalism is evil, and I'm grateful to live in the country I live in. I like America in general. I may not like Americans all the time, but I like America. I like the country I live in. I'm grateful to be here. But it doesn't prevent me from pointing out flaws in the system. I can love the country in the same way that I can love my denomination and my church, and it's that very love for country, that very love for for my faith and my faith community that that can that compels me to talk about things that I see as problems and things that can be fixed. You don't let someone continue to exist in dysfunction if you love them. You do what you can to support them and bring them out of it. So here's the idea that was talked about in this debate. So the, the basic idea was that capitalism works best when goods and services can be exchanged for currency along a elastic price band or elastic price line, right? A, a, a price that can continually shift as supply and demand would dictate. So if you don't want a product or you don't want to pay that much for a product, then you don't buy it. And if enough people don't buy that thing, it tells the company that they either priced too high or they made a product that nobody wanted. And this works for most things as long as those things are optional products and services. Because the company can respond to supply and demand, and they can alter prices as necessary, because that's what's like, if not, they don't sell anything. But the system breaks down when it comes to products and services that are needed. So I have asthma. I've had asthma since I was a child, and I need inhalers. Like, I have an inhaler. There's one in my room. Um especially in the winter. In the winter, it's actually worse for me than any other time of year. Or if I'm like exercising in, in, in an air-conditioned place like a gym, uh, then it becomes a problem. There's no way really around the reality that I need an inhaler. 
I can do all the exercises. I can do all the alternate diets. I can get rid of dairy. I can get rid of whatever. But at the end of the day, when I inevitably have a asthma attack at some point, if I don't have an inhaler, I die. Like, that's it. If I don't have an inhaler, if I don't have what I need to live medically, then I die. I don't have a choice but to get an inhaler. This is, this is the same thing that's true for someone who is diabetic or someone who's on insulin. So when those medications and that healthcare to, for those, you know, for any sort of chronic illness or any illness whatsoever is needed, companies are now incentivized to charge basically whatever they want, especially if there's no competition. So take Daraprim, for example. Daraprim is the, the AIDS HIV drug um, that made headlines in 2015 when Martin Shkreli bought out the company and raised the price of the drug from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill pretty much overnight. And then is actually quoted as saying, and I don't have like the direct quote, but he's, he's quoted as saying, my job is to make as much money as possible for investors, for my company. And the, blow the, the blowback was insane. And Shkreli then would announce, like, like, people ripped him to shreds over this. And he stood by it for a few days. And then he changed his tune after the blowback. And he announced that the price would go down to, quote, an affordable level. And those that argue for capitalism here and those that say, see, the system worked, supply and demand worked. The people demanded a lower price for this drug. And he caved. He acquiesced and said the price would be lowered. Except that the price of Daraprim never lowered. And there was no market alternative for this drug until 2020. And this is like an actual industry norm. Investors and business people will find drugs that have a small market base, right? That have a very limited pool because those drugs naturally don't have a high profit margin since there's not a lot of people that need them. But the people that need them really need them. So what they do is they buy out the drug, they buy out the company, they get the patent, and then they drive prices up, tightly controlling and regulating how those pills are distributed, which prevents other companies from creating affordable alternatives. And the FDA approval process is stressful and incredibly complex and, and long. Because from 2015 until now, the price never came down, which means that they never caved to demand. But outside of that, five years passed until we got an affordable alternative, 2020. When the market controls needed goods, the market proves over and over and over again that it has a greater interest in profitability than in serving people. When it comes to essential goods and services, this is true. This is why there's a big push, by the way, for, for uh, cable and internet, broadband, all of that be, being classified as a utility rather than as a, uh, rather than as a, um, just a, like a privatized business or, or privatized commodity, because then the price gouging stops from companies like Comcast. Because did you know until like a week ago, Cable companies could charge you a rental fee to, for you to use a router that you already own. Like you're not even renting a router from them. You're using your own router and now you have to 
uh, and now you had to pay a rental fee. So that a law literally, literally just passed like two weeks ago or a week ago that said that they can't do that anymore. Now, when we're talking about Daraprim, I want to I want to stay on this example here. I want to address some of the common arguments that I usually hear about this example or that I would expect to hear uh, from this example. So someone might say, yeah, uh, someone might say, but wait, see, an alternative has been created now. The competition will help drive down the price of Daraprim uh, from 750 down or else they'll just lose the market because now there's an affordable alternative to this drug that is just as effective. Capitalism is working because now there's competition. But for five years, for five years, a ton of people were unable to afford life-saving medication. If your preferred system, economic, religious, whatever, requires that people needlessly die for you to make a profit, then your system is the one that needs to change, not the people. If your preferred system requires that people needlessly die for you to make a profit, then your system is broken, not the people. Five years went by before there was competition. And because of anti-competitive practices, by the way, from an unregulated area of the market, largely, that's what we end up with. So point number two. But Daraprim was cheaper for people with health insurance. It's not $750 per pill for those that have health insurance. And while that may be true, that it's not as expensive for those with health insurance, there's a couple things that I, that I want to point out here. Health insurance costs are going up. Health insurance premiums are going up. Hospitals consistently bill more than they need to, and pharmaceutical companies charge more than they need to simply because they know that people won't have a choice except to pay. If a diabetic needs insulin, they're going to pay whatever they have to pay or they just die. And this is a continual cycle that drives up health insurance and healthcare costs across the board. Like, listen to this. In 2019, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation released the uh, Employer Health Benefit Survey, and they do one every year. Uh, and, and 2019's survey showed that employer sponsored, not just like independent premiums, but employer sponsored premiums increased 4% for single and 5% for family coverage, respectively during 2018 or like over uh, past 2018. So from 2018 to 2019 employer sponsored premiums increased 4% for single payer or, or for single uh single coverage and 5% for family coverage. And at that same time and during that same time wages increased by 3.4% and inflation by 2%. The average family or the average premium for family coverage has increased 22% from 2015 to 2019 and 54% from 20 from 2009 until 2019 which is significantly faster than the rate of worker inflation or worker wages or uh inflation for worker wages right so already health insurance premiums are continually rising and according to the 2020 report, same report, or same survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation in 2020, 
annual premiums for employer-sponsored family health coverage reached $21,342 this year, up 4% from last year, with workers on average paying $5,588 towards the cost of their own coverage. The average deductible among covered workers in a plan with a general annual deductible is $1,644 for single coverage. 4% for employer-sponsored uh, family health coverage, up from 2019, which was up 4% from 2018. So in the last two years alone, you have almost 10% increase in costs on average for employer-sponsored health insurance uh, premiums. And all of the price gouging comes over services that are needed, not just optional ones, right? It's not like... Like people are going to the hospital for, for, for kicks and giggles. They're going because they need medical care. And, all, and because of the overcharging and because people know they can get away with that, it raises the, the board, uh, it raises price across or prices across the board for all of us. So when Daraprim costs $750 per pill, you say, yeah, the workers aren't paying it. They have health insurance. Yeah, which means someone is paying it. And it's not that someone like the... The problem isn't the problem isn't that it doesn't get paid for. The problem is that it's not a pill that should cost $750 per pill. This stuff is why I talk about a single payer system and why I believe that we can have the government play a more direct role in healthcare costs. It's not it's not that I believe that people shouldn't make money for services they provide or the amazing drugs that they innovate to create. But I do believe that there is an ethical line there that a free market inherently ignores when it comes to goods and services. But Ryan, the government doesn't work. We need smaller government, not more government. Well, A, I'm not asking for government to run everything that we do. I'm asking that the system of governments we created and elect, or that, yeah, that we created and that we elect officials to work in should actually serve the people that fund it. I'm asking for the government to cover the things that are considered essential, like healthcare. And I'm so, so tired of the, the whole, like, government doesn't work. Government is broken argument. But this is the entire conservative mantra, right? The government doesn't work. The government fails. The government, you can't rely on the government to do anything. If you do, it's just going to fail you. It's going to turn on you, whatever. The problem with this mantra is that the government does work when we make it work. But for conservatives to prove their platform correct, they intentionally set up government organizations and entities to fail in order to then say, see, we told you, government doesn't work. Yeah, because you broke it on purpose. Like, it's quite literally political gaslighting. I'm not going to take off my watch and throw it on the ground or take my phone and throw it on the ground and tell you that iPhones don't work. If I throw it on the ground and break my iPhone or my watch, I'm the one that broke it. I'm the problem there. There's this economic idea dating back to, I believe, the 60s. I mean, it's existed for longer, but, but actually as a term, I think it was uh, in the 60s called starving the beasts or starving the beast. This is the idea that by decreasing taxes, you are decreasing funding to the government, thus also decreasing spending from the government. 
So this is a conservative strategy that's been employed since then to basically say, like, if we lower taxes, we lower revenue into the government, which means that there's less money to spend. So we reduce spending by reducing income. When employed successfully, this means that government institutions will actually start to fail because they don't end up with the funding that they need. And when this inevitably happens, conservatives are then quick to say, the government can't take care of you. See, it's inefficient. And look, we, we actually watched this play out with the USPS this year, with the United States Postal Service this year. They put someone who has stock, uh, who has stock ownership in the private sector for delivery services, Louis DeJoy, who he was installed by conservative leadership. And we started to see the USPS completely fall to pieces in the middle of the in the middle of the year. Now, there's speculation as to what the overall point of this was in light of the election using more mail in voting. Many believe that like this was an intentional move by Republicans to cast doubt and on the accuracy and reliability of mail in voting as a system, knowing that more Democrats would be more likely to mail in vote. I think that and I tend to fall on that side of thinking like that was that was an intentional strategy for Trump to basically tell all of his followers, you can't trust mail-in voting, and then have the USPS completely kind of, not dismantled, but but handicapped significantly. So that then, when all of the mail-in votes come in, and they're overwhelmingly blue, they're overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly for Biden, because Trump told all of his voters not to vote that way, then Trump can cry foul and say, see, like, there's no way this is this is real. There's no way these are accurate. Something fishy is happening. But either way, like all of that aside, now it suddenly seems like the post office is failing the U.S. because, well, it doesn't have what it needs to be successful. In fact, it's been intentionally handicapped by the person in charge. You have trucks going out empty just because they want to stay, quote, on schedule. But the post office has always been one of our country's most robust and reliable government systems. It rarely fails, but suddenly it's unreliable within six months of conservative leadership being or conservative leadership installing someone who would also personally benefit from the failure from the failure of the Postal Service. Driving people to use alternate delivery companies like UPS and FedEx. Back in April, Trump actually famously railed against the USPS, saying the Postal Service is a joke because they're handing out packages for Amazon and other internet companies, and every time they bring a package, they lose money on it. And this is funny for a number of reasons, but the main one being that that's actually one of the, like that deal that the, that the, postal, that the post office has with Amazon is actually one of their more profitable ones. But the major reason, the major reason that the USPS's funding is so screwed up is because of something that was introduced by Republicans in 2006 and signed into law by President Bush. So in 2006, Republicans introduced the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act, or Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, which basically required the Postal, or the postal Service, the Post Office, to pre-fund future retiree health benefits, not just pensions. Uh, and the law... Uh, the law put a financial strain on the service, right? So the it reorganized the Postal Rate Commission, compelled the USPS to pay in advance for the health and retirement benefits of all of its employees for at least 50 years, uh, and no other federal agency, by the way, faces any sort of pre-funding mandate for that. No other federal agency in the private sector, sector that exists, but it exists slightly differently from this, but, in the, but this is unheard of for, for government agencies. 
prior to this being passed. Between 2007 and 2016, the United States Postal Service lost... Ooh, I just dropped something. Between 2007 and 2016, the USPS lost $62.4 billion. And the expe- Inspector General in 2019 of, of the Postal Service estimated that 54, um, $54.8 billion of that was due to pre-funding retiree benefits. And by 2012, the Postal Service was already defaulting on this specific payment. And this is just like the most recent and pointed example that impacted all of us because suddenly we weren't getting packages and they were sitting in limbo or getting not getting mail. Now, granted, there's other reasons, right? There's other reasons for the loss in revenue. More people using email, less people actually sending things, um, less postage being bought. You know, like there, there's there's a whole smorgasbord of reasons. But when out of $62.4 billion, 54.8 of it was lost because of this, that's significant. And it was Republicans that introduced it. It was conservatives that signed it into law. And given enough time on any given topic, I believe one could reasonably make the case that many of many of our government institutions are failing by way of people intentionally destroying it in order to make the case that government is failing in order to put more power and profit into the hands of the private sector. This is political gaslighting. That's what this is. I don't like there's no other there's there's no there's no sugarcoating that I'm not I'm. If you're a Republican and you're listening to this, I'm surprised you've made it this far because most people would have turned it off by the by, by me bringing them up in the first place. But like, I'm not against Republicans in general, but I am against this this entirely frustrating cycle of of conservatives getting power, dismantling the government or a government institution, and then saying, "See, that government institution is broken." You want another example? Trump disbanding the task force on um, on pandemic relief, on, on, on pandemic study and prep and response. There's, there's one for you. Because now the government was on the back foot when an actual pandemic hit. And the government hasn't actually passed that much in the way of relief, right? We've only gotten one $1,200 check, maybe a PPP loan here or there. Um, but honestly, the government hasn't really done much in the last few years. And here's, here's why. Mitch McConnell, the Republican majority leader in the Senate, openly bragged earlier this year about almost 400 bills that were sitting on his desk in his office that he would never allow to even be put up for a vote because of their, quote, left-wing agenda. It's not like he's hogtied or too busy. It's not like he can't, he can't actually put these up for a vote. Because he had no problem ramming the Amy Barrett Cohen nomination through right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Like, this isn't... The the government can move efficiently when they want to. But when your entire platform relies on the government not doing what it's supposed to be able to do, then you're incentivized to try and break it in order to prove your own point and to maintain power. But when we decide to actually elect leaders that actually aim to serve the people, we get a government that can actually function and perform the will of the people. And by the way, it's not just a Mitch McConnell thing. Like, Mitch McConnell is just the guy that's willing to be the antagonist and be the enemy. But, like, the bottom line is Senate Republicans could put up for a vote and remove him at any point in time as the majority leader and replace him. But they don't. 
which means they're complicit in all of this as well. And no, I'm not saying Democrats are perfect. So if if like that's something that you're you're going to jump on, like I'm not saying that this isn't the time for whataboutism. I'm talking about one very specific thing here. The failing government argue, uh, the, the failing government argument assumes that the failure of government is destiny, that it can do no other than to fail. Yet that argument is usually built on a foundation of people intentionally making it fail in order to keep making that argument. There's a, there's a really popular kind of theory or, or kind of school of thought right now that, that's saying that it's likely that the Supreme Court doesn't, even with their 6-3 majority, doesn't overturn Roe v. Wade because they would lose all of their single-issue voters. All the single-issue voters that are voting um, in favor of Republicans would have no reason to vote for Republicans anymore if they were able to overturn Roe v. Wade, completely outlaw abortion or whatever. That's like a thing. So there's a school of thought that's, that, that basically is assuming or presuming that, that the Supreme Court's not actually going to turn, overturn Roe v. Wade because the GOP would lose a major part of their platform. Because when the, when the Southern strategy, like the Southern strategy kicked in in the 60s and when desegregation happened, when, when Jim Crow laws were ended, there was a lot of platform that, that the conservatives lost. And abortion became the very next thing that they took in order to still have a realistic platform. But I'm sick of this bootstraps argument that people try and make all the time. Like, you, you know, it's personal responsibility. The government shouldn't try and help you. As if pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is even something you can physically do. Like, the entire point of that saying is that it's impossible. The government has a responsibility to serve its citizens with the money that its citizens give it. It's not some third party supporting or propping up lazy Americans. It's Americans taking care of Americans by way of taxpayer dollars. That's what it is. It's us taking care of each other. This one shouldn't be hard. And like, we've, we've so overly politicized all of this that now it's become hard. But it didn't need to be. And it doesn't need to be. And right now, we're sitting on the cusp of, of 14 million people losing needed unemployment assistance and aid because we're going to fight over $600. And I hope that something happens this week that's good. I hope that that something is different. But the only thing I can say at the end of this is like, this is why it's so important to vote. If you're in the state of Georgia and you're listening to this this week, like, please vote in the Senate runoff uh, race. Please vote. And you can, you're welcome to look into, to those running and understand uh, just who you're voting for here. But please vote. It's incredibly important. It really honestly decides how functional of a government we're going to have for the next two years. But ultimately, I would say this. If you are in a position of need, I, I'm, I pray that you will get need, the help that you need. I pray that you will get the support that you need. Um, I really, I, I'm proud of you and I believe in you. I'm proud of you for, for making it this far and I believe and your ability to still struggle through this and tough it out as much as you can. But don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. For the rest of us, it's incredibly important that we vote whenever we have the opportunity to, to make our voice heard, in order to elect officials that will represent us, represent the will of the people, and actually help us. Because it's outright absurd that in nine months, with a bunch of unemployment, 
we are actually sitting here arguing over whether or not we're going to get an additional just six or six hundred dollars. It is absurd that after nine months of a pandemic, all that Americans can get is eighteen hundred, and even eighteen hundred is is almost not going to happen. We need to do better than this, and the only way we do better is by making our voices heard through the voting process. So, with that. Thank you guys so much for listening. Go check out Absurdity's membership platforms. Go check out the Absurd Podcast Network and pick copy yourself up some merch. Uh, all links are in the episode description. Kaiser Family Survey uh, links are in the description as well. Um, but we will see you soon. I'll be posting bonus content for the Absurdity Family this month as well in uh, or through through January. Uh, but thank you guys so much for being a part of this. Uh, for those of you that are joining on the live stream, thanks for watching. Um, I'll hang out for a couple minutes after I stop recording here and, and we'll chat for a bit. Um, but yeah, we'll see you all next time.